All right, folks. I think we can get started here. Thanks, everyone, for joining this X, formerly known as Twitter, space. I am FIRE's Executive Vice President, Nico Perino, here with my boss, FIRE President and CEO, Greg Wukianoff. Greg, how's it going? <laughs> a little, little, little busy. A little busy? Yeah. How was, your, how was your weekend? Did you get some nice rest and relaxation? Oh, totally. No, nothing happened. Um, yeah, it was kind of crazy, particularly after the Bill Maher thing on Friday. Um, you know, th- that was breakneck because I had to get home to my kid's uh, birthday party. And then uh, almost as soon as we got home, um, it all started up with the, um, you know, University of, of Pennsylvania um, president stepping down. And it's been uh, just madness. Honestly, it's been madness ever since the um, the hearings last week. Yeah, we were originally going to do this about your new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, which, of course, you were on Bill Maher's show to discuss. But Which everyone we- should purchase because basically <laughs> right now what, what's happening is a lot of schools are going, you know what, maybe we should regulate speech more. And I'm kind of like, you already have been regulating speech like crazy people, and it's been a disaster. The solution can't be do more of what you're doing. <laughs> it, it's it's funny. Um we can't really have a conversation right now about any of FIRE's issues without bringing up what's happened over the last week, but really over the last two months since the attacks on October 7th. We were doing a webinar for our top supporters, our Ember Club members, uh, about FIRE's kind of growth and successes and, and you know, sometimes in some cases failures uh, since our expansion in June of, of 2022. But all anyone wanted to talk about, and justifiably so, is what's been going on. Now, Greg, you know what the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, is like on campus, the passions it it arises. We have the saying at FIRE that we will drive this bus, this organization, into the wall (laughs) if it means staying principled. Uh, And that phrase, I believe, came in the context of of this conflict. So you want to talk a little bit about the history there? Um, Not actually out of specifically this conflict, but when I start, good training um, for this. And and Ricky Schlott, my co-author of Canceling of the American Mind, a 23-year-old genius, um, she um, uh, remembers like me talking about how my first cases were all about 9-11 and about, oof, that must have been hard. That's some unsympathetic speech to be defending. Uh, um, uh, And honestly, it was great training for getting into the free speech biz because you got to get used to the fact that if I'm doing my job right, everyone's going to hate me from time to time. <laughs> and literally my very, oh, well, first of all, I landed at 9, 10 a.m. on September 11th to find an apartment in Philadelphia to be the first legal director of fire. Um, got stuck in Philly for a whole week after that because uh, planes were, uh, um, uh, they'll, uh, planes weren't flying for a whole week, which younger people aren't even going to know. It was crazy. My very first letter was defending a guy who said, anyone who can blow up the Pentagon has my vote. He was joking, um, but you know, eventually they forced him out. Um, and my very first time on TV was defending Samuel Arian, uh, who they, he, he was a professor at University of South Florida, who they were trying to fire for saying death to Israel um, in a, ta- a recording from 1989. This is 2001 at this point, by the way. Now, the real claim against Samuel Arian was that he had t- ties to, um, uh, t- to Middle Eastern terrorist groups. But they decided to go with uh, USF, decided to uh, go after him for um uh for, for his speech because they had previously done a whitewash of uh of Samuel Arian on the terrorism charge so they thought they could get away with just firing him for speech and fire very early on was like you know not on our watch 
Meanwhile, though, we knew that that this case was, you know, so unsympathetic. Um, and when we first, you know, were asked to take it, we're like, there's no question we're going to take it. And we're a young organization. And might this destroy us from uh, by being so popular, so unpopular? We're like, well, you know, we're willing to drive this bus into a wall if it means stay principled. Yeah. I mean, defending the First Amendment can sometimes mean taking on really hard cases at its outer bounds. I mean, sometimes it requires defending offensive, vile bigoted speech, but there is a long, proud tradition in America of principled civil libertarians defending our core constitutional rights in the most difficult of circumstances. I made a movie, Mighty Ira. Uh, Excellent movie. Award-winning movie. Award-winning movie. Uh, Yeah, my colleagues uh, and I worked on that for a number of years. Folks who don't know Ira Glasser, he's a former executive director of the ACLU, a non-lawyer, in fact. Um, And while the Skokie case was going on, he was the director of the New York Civil Liberties Union, which had the most Jewish members of any ACLU affiliate in the country at the time. He, he became executive director of the, the broader ACLU, the national ACLU, um, right at the tail end of the Skokie case. Um, but I got to know in the process of making this film, some of the lawyers and advocates in the late 70s, who um, you know, Jewish lawyers and advocates, who took on the Skokie case. Uh, that defended the rights of neo-Nazis to rally in Skokie, Illinois, then a home to, I believe, about 6,000 Holocaust survivors. And why did they do it? Well, they did it because they knew that giving the government the power to censor is a greater danger than letting someone make a total fool of themselves in this case. And they were total fools, these uh, neo-Nazis led by led by Frank Collin. But uh, we're not here necessarily to uh, explore the past. We are here to discuss the present and I think we should maybe, Greg, just jump right into discussing that testimony that the three college presidents, the presidents of MIT, Harvard, and Penn made in Congress last week. I mean, what are your top line thoughts? And we can kind of dig in from there. You know, I'll put my various hats on. Uh, One, as a lawyer, um, I... All I could ask myself was who on earth prepped um, the presidents of Harvard and um, and Penn. I, I just thought that they they really they didn't know how to conduct themselves during it. They they sometimes got the answers right, but not in a not, not in a persuasive, convincing, compassionate, compelling way. It just seemed like they just totally flubbed it. Um, now, so so partially just from a from a competency standpoint, I, I, I thought it was a little bit painful. Um, from an from an answering uh, question, um, I mean the fact that um, uh, they're constantly asked for a yes or no answer from, by Stefanik on whether or not um, you know, speech advocating for genocide is protected. Yes or no. Um, you know, part of the initial answer to that is like in in the law, particularly First Amendment law, there aren't a lot of yes or no answers. Like no, and and we should be thankful that there's not because if the law was that simple, a lot more innocent people would be going to jail for their speech. And it was also frustrating because it focused so much on the um, idea of pro genocide speech when what they were really talking about were uh, two uh, two expressions: one, intifada, um, you know, sh- uh, students shouting intifada, and two the expression from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free. And while I absolutely understand why those statements are, are offensive, and, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to people who think they are, I think they're offensive. I don't think that's what a lot of students think they're shouting. I don't think they think they're shouting uh, genocide. Um, there, there's an interesting thing going around in X right now, you know, about a little survey of students being uh, shown the map uh, or where the river uh, is and where the sea is and coming to the realizations like, oh, you mean get rid of the state? 
they, that, that wasn't what they immediately understood it to mean. And a lot, once they actually find out, a lot of students are like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. that that's, not, that's not my position. But that's being conflated to a, a, a scenario in which someone's like, you know, just demanding you know, kill, all, uh, kill, kill all Jews. Um, and the, uh, so I, it's been frustrating that it's happening at a more of an abstract level when the speech in question, shouting intifada, um, and, um, from the river to the sea is clearly protected. However, uh, one thing that's w- worth saying, and this is what they're getting at with context, can, a, can you have a situation where someone's shouting intifada where it is part of a true threat or is part of a pattern of discriminatory harassment or even part of a pattern of incitement? Absolutely. But it does require more. It requires, you know, like pe- people have given me the example of, you know, um, surrounding students and sh- uh, surrounding Jewish students and shouting "kill all Jews." Well, the standard for threats is: would a reasonable person, under the circumstances, believe that they were in, uh, in imminent harm of, bo- of, of bodily injury or death? Um, and you could make the argument in some of these uh, in some of these cases that, yeah, actually, that line was crossed. And to the extent to which we have seen people suggesting killing. The one case that I'm familiar of where it was where it was crystal clear that's exactly what they were saying was at Cornell, um, where a, a student was arrested um, for making things that clearly cross, cross the line into you know threats to, Jew, to to kill Jewish students, and that is not protected, nor should it be. Yeah. Before we continue, Greg, I just want to urge our listeners that if they have questions, they can type them uh, into the chat feature, which I think is at the bottom of your X page, as I am informed by our social media guy. So type those in and uh, they'll be fed to us and uh, we'll try and answer them throughout this conversation. Yeah. But so the president's answer was, it depends on the context. And that's always the case when we're talking about unprotected (laughs) speech, Greg, right? Like it's always a fact intensive analysis. And and you want it to be, you you, you don't want, uh, so I had a friend, you know, um, who I I love very much, but it was very critical of our take on this because it's like, no, calls for genocide don't require any context. And I uh, gave, I I talked about the story at Drexel, uh, which is, you know, a professor uh, responding to people who were talking about replacement theory, the idea that uh, there is a um, conspiracy about to to replace white people um, and that uh, with with non-white people, I think is basically the theory. Um, and his response on Christmas Eve, maybe 2019, I remember 2018, Eve, I think 2018, yeah. cause it kind of ruined my Christmas Eve was, um, uh, uh was, uh, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. Now that was a joke. It was a, not necessarily a joke in great taste, but, a, but a joke making fun of great re- replacement theory. Um, and, and I've, when I've said this to people, I've occasionally gotten the kind of like, oh yeah, but that wasn't serious. And I'm like, yes, but seriousness is part of context. Yes. Um, if you, you know, that is context. Uh, so the, like, you know, are you more likely to have a situation when someone's actually saying kill all blank, that that could actually cross the line into, uh, into something that might be interpreted as a true threat? You bet it, you, you, you bet it could, but it, but it, it always relies on context. We don't want there to be a situation where just saying a, a particular forbidden word, for example, is something that can get you arrested or kicked out of school. Yeah, and I, I think all we need to do is pose the hypotheticals. And, and that case is great, Greg, the case at Drexel, because it's not a hypothetical, right? On its face, yep. it is, appears to be a call for genocide, but context reveals it to be not quite that. But let's look at the political discourse that's happening right now, you ha- where you have people who say that Israel's invasion of Gaza is a genocide against the Palestinians. If you give yep. uh, those in power a broad abstract speech code that bans general calls for genocide, you can bet it'll be used yeah. by opponents of, of Israel to, uh, to punish 
uh, Jewish or, or Israeli speakers, or you, vice versa, right? Like the state of Israel, folks say, is a, is a genocidal enterprise. Um, and then, my, you know, we've, we've, we've talked internally and, and on X about like pro-lifers think that yeah. abortion is a genocide of the unborn. Uh, trans rights activists sometimes argue that uh, people who believe and advocate only for gender binary are erasing trans people and committing genocide against trans people. You can see, and we've seen this time and time and time again, Greg, and you were the foremost expert about this, that if you give folks a broad speech code that is untethered from the legal standards, it will be used in an arbitrary yes. and discriminatory way to go after political minorities and dissenters on campus. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And, 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 and our much beloved COO, Alicia Glennon, you know, was pointing this out over the weekend as well, as, was, as were you and Alex Mori. But I think she said something like, you know, you can be pretty sure this is going to happen. Um, you know, uh, and I'm much more kind of like, no, you can be dead certain it's going to happen. Um, so, uh, so Wharton, I think, is pursuing something saying that we're going to, uh, you know, ban any, um, any genocide so speech. And I'm like, okay, so hate speech, going, no, they want to, they want to put in place a hate speech. Code. Is, is just hate speech code. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like, okay, so you're, you're, um, it, 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 if you're, dog in the fight is that you want to make sure that, that um, you know, Israel is well represented on campus, then that's going to lead to the disinvitation of pro-Israeli speakers all across the country. Because like the, the, the belief on campus in many cases, and the argument, of course, is, is that they jump very quickly to um, their pro-genocide. And actually, and I will say that like the, um, how often the word genocide is used um, for situations, um, you know, like uh, the, the argument that that maybe too many kids are receiving, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 whatever whatever it is, um, like hormone replacement. Uh, yeah. um, uh, that, that that's that, yeah. that's a form of uh, that arguing against that is actually a form of genocide as well. So the um, yeah, this will get abused almost immediately and unquestionably. I mean, that is the lesson of speech codes. And in fact, fire was founded in the wake of the water buffalo incident at the University of Pennsylvania in 1993. Now, so some of our younger listeners might not be familiar with stor this story, but in 1993, an Israeli Jewish student, Eden Jacobowitz, was studying in his dorm room, and there was some loud sorority sisters outside the dorm room that were interrupting his and others uh, studying. A bunch of students yelled at them, but Eden yelled, shut up, you water buffalo, out of his dorm room window. And the students pressed charges on campus alleging uh, racial harassment. But Eden, being an Israeli Jewish student, was merely translating the Yiddish slang term behima, which is slang for a loud and unruly person. It was not a racial epithet that he was, he was shouting out. And, and water buffalo hadn't been used or described or thought of as a racial epithet before that. So it just goes to show, and that, and that case ended up being taken up by our co-founder, Alan Charles Coors, and it was made international news and the charges were eventually dropped against Eden. But you can just see how these kind of broad, amorphous speech codes that are untethered from the legal standards. Now, Penn can have its own speech codes if it wants, but there's wisdom in the, in the jurisprudence of the First Amendment. And there's a reason that these standards are rigorous so that they're not abused. And in the 1980s, one of the first hate speech codes that was put in place on campus was at the University of Michigan. And that speech code was struck down in 1988. And that speech code was put in place, in fact, to protect black students on campus. But its first victim was a black student in the School of uh, Social Work. So, you know, if, if folks are going and looking for expansions of uh, speech codes or, or looking to censorship as a tool 
to defeat anti-Semitism on campus, I, I'd warn that these expansions of uh, censorship are very, very short-sighted. And if the argument is that college administrators are enabling anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, I mean, you could pick any bigotry on campus, why would you want to give them then the power yes. to exercise sensorial um, tools? I mean, it's just, it's just uh, asinine. Oh, so so um, uh, I know we're not jumping to questions just yet, but I, I but I felt like Alley Cat at Nerd Nerdcore uh, eighty four um, actually just made made a, a great important point that I want to hit. She she writes, uh, can you comment on the risk that universities will take precisely the wrong message from this and tighten speech restrictions <laughs> rather than reverse their hypocritical limitations? on other deemed uh, speech deemed hateful or otherwise problematic. That's the billion dollar question right now. And, 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 that, and that's something that we're all pretty concerned about. Um, that now, the, uh, Liz McGill, uh, her first name was Liz, right? Um, yeah. st- st- stepping down um, is something that it's hard for free speech advocates to f- feel bad about. Penn very much earned um, its next-to-bottom uh, status for free speech in the fire uh, free speech rankings in our very rigorous evaluation of 13 different factors to figure out you know where how good schools are doing on free speech. And folks can check that out at rankings.thefire.org if they want. Yes, absolutely. Please do. Um, and the um, uh, and and of course, after all this stuff happened, um, after she sort of embarrassed herself uh, in the testimony, she decided to go public with the idea that we need to delink um, the uh, standards from are uh, the, the, the Penn's policies from constitutional standards, and that would be. A complete disaster. It's honestly one of the scariest things from a free speech perspective I've heard come out of the mouth of an elite college president. Um, and so when she stepped down, you know, there's there can be no way we can sort of lament this. Also, some of the people who are demanding that she step down, at least what they're proposing on paper, you know, is the idea of debureaucratizing universities um, dramatically, which I think is kind of the only way to protect speech. So, you know, like we have some qualified hope when it comes to Penn. I'm a little bit more worried about what happens if Claudine Gay is forced to uh, step down. Although Bill Ackman, I can't, I, I got to give it to him. He makes a hell of an argument for um, uh, for, for her stepping down. Uh, something that is that is very persuasive, unfortunately, that includes her bad record on free speech, like her role in not standing up for Ronald Sullivan um, at at Harvard uh, several years ago. This was a guy who. Um, spoke uh, who actually briefly uh, was part of the team that represented Harvey Weinstein. Now, to people who hear that who aren't lawyers, there might be a little bit of like, well, yeah, you should, you shouldn't, you shouldn't work anywhere if you represent that that low life. That is not the way lawyers think about that kind of thing. And and what enrages me—that's oh, a pretty strong word—but I'm still mad about it at Harvard <laughs> is is what they needed to do in that circumstance. Because like, you know, one of my best friends from law school, one of my groomsmen is a public defender in San Francisco. We don't think of that as like, oh, that's kind of okay if you want to do that. It's kind of gross that you defend guilty people. No, we think of that as noble. Defending uh, defending odious people, saying that even guilty uh, people need uh, good representation is something that actually we consider noble and, um, and commendable in the law. And because Harvard never said that, and this is one of the things that Harvard has screwed up time and time again, like failing to actually come out strongly in favor of people like Carol Hooven or Ronald Sullivan, um, and so I, I understand the skepticism of Claudine Gay, and I know that. Uh, but I, but I will say this: unlike uh, McGill, 
Uh, Claudine Gay came in and initially said a lot of good things about free speech, partially in response to their um, bottom of the, the their dead last finish in, in the fire rankings. And um, also saw, engagement with the ac- new academic freedom group at Harvard. Yeah, we, we see some things that make us a little bit hopeful uh, for Claudine Gay. And if she ends up stepping down, the fear is that that will be interpreted as saying, no, you didn't clamp down on freedom of speech enough. Now, but, but to be clear, no matter what happens at these universities, uh, FIRE is available to um, for people who want to reform, about ways to reform, to make the environment better for free speech. Because there's this, oh, there was this absolutely awful article over the weekend from a uh, University of Pennsylvania professor who's supposed to be in charge of academic freedom and free speech, making the now 60-year-old argument that we have to, you know, the problem on campus is too much free speech. It's like, no, most of the things that people are pointing to as problems are the, re- are the result of censorship, like screaming at each other rather, rather than constructive dialogue is, is part of the problem of cancel culture, it's something that we make ad nauseum you know, in, in, uh, in canceling the American mind. It doesn't really make you nauseous. It's, it's a delightful book. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and at the same time, like a lot of what they're pointing to is actually stuff that they should have been um, prohibiting anyway. So, like, so one of the things that Ackman points out are actual disruptions of classes. No, you, don't, you, you should not be tolerating that. You, you should not be tolerating shout-downs. You should not be tolerating actual incitement, threats, or, or harassment, vandalism, um, certainly some of the assaults that we've been seeing, you know, because, of course, grabbing someone's assault, that should not be tolerated. But the problem is not on campus that there is too much free speech. That's ridiculous. We should talk just briefly about double standards here, Greg, because I think mm. one of the things that frustrates oh, a lot of Oh, we can't say that enough. Yeah, one of the things that I think frustrates a lot of people is that these colleges, these college presidents, are falling back on free speech standards uh, now where uh, their universities were all too eager to censor previously. For example, yes. MIT famously canceled the planned 2020 lecture by University of Chicago professor Dorian Abbott after faculty and graduate students complained about his views on things like affirmative action and certain diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. You mentioned, Greg, Harvard administrators drove out lecturer Carol Hooven for arguing that biological sex is real and promoting her book Testosterone on Fox News. You have Penn. This is like the most bonkers case that I've heard recently. They prohibited a group of students from screening a documentary critical of Israel called Israelism. And the students decided they were going to go ahead and screen it anyway in an act of civil disobedience. They got a faculty member at, I think, like the Middle East Studies Center to reserve the room for them because the university wouldn't give it to them on their own. The the leader of that faculty center had to resign as a result of it. And the students, again, in an act of civil disobedience, screened it anyway. To think about that, that on a college or university campus, to screen a documentary and have a discussion about it needs to be an act of civil disobedience is absurd. And then, of course, you have all these cases where you have got schools like UCLA putting out guidance that says uh, asking someone where they're from is a racial microaggression. You have Harvard that says that fat phobia is a form of, of violence. You have schools where <laughs> it's silly things like distributing uh, sushi in the school dining hall is a form of cultural appropriation. Doing yoga is cultural appropriation. It's like there's all this like little speech policing that's going on all over the, the country. So you can understand people are frustrated then when they hear what they believe should be unprotected calls for genocide and the college and university president's fall back on freedom of speech arguments. But the argument is not when colleges and universities are exercising double standards and being hypocritical to censor more speech. No, it's the answer is to end the censorship, end all of the silly censorship and hypocritical double standards that have existed for decades. 
Yeah. Now, the, the um, oh, actually, a, a commenter just said, but consistently enforced hate speech code uh, laws are far better than inconsistently enforced ones. No, um, none of them <laughs> are, are good. The, the reducing every, because uh, this is a point that Alan, uh, Alan Charles Coors makes, the University of Pennsylvania uh, uh, professor who, who co-founded FIRE, is that um, speech codes have always relied on double standards because they can't work without them. Because if you actually enforce them by the plain language of the codes, uh, nobody would be allowed to say anything. Everybody would be prosecuted under them. And so that, therefore, they wouldn't last, uh, last a minute. So the answer can't be you know, reducing everyone to silence on any important topic. Um, but that seems to be where some, some people's minds are going. And that means you know, the fire is going to have to work even harder um, you know, over the uh, next several years to, to prove how utterly foolish such an idea is, particularly in, in, a, in a place that relies on uh, the marketplace of ideas to, pr- to produce knowledge. Greg, we should talk briefly. We have a question um, from a listener asking about Title VI and obligations under that regarding uh, hostile environment harassment. Now, my understanding is Title VI doesn't cover religion, but it's been interpreted um, yeah. through through uh, agency guidance to to cover religion and ethnic origin and, and national origin. So, can you talk a little bit about the standards for hostile environment harassment, in, in particular, in, in, in this context? Well, when it comes to student-on-student harassment, if it's targeted, severe, persistent, and per, uh, pervasive, you know, are some of the um, and, and discriminatory, um, then uh, that then it can actually rise to the level of harassment. And whereas uh, we see that the, the harassment standard abused on campus all the time, and we've made this argument repeatedly, and in fact, the speech codes that, that were products of the 80s and 90s, what I call the first great age of political correctness um, in, in Reason Magazine and also in Canceling of the American Mind, um, they, were, they were all harassment-based codes. Uh, the, the harassment was kind of the um, uh, sort of code word to sort of get around uh, free speech um, because harassment is a real thing, but if you define harassment simply as offensive speech, then it is, it's just simply a speech code. And all of these were overturned that were challenged from 1989 to, uh, to 1995, including at my alma mater, the very last one at my alma mater, Stanford uh, Law School. But we do absolutely, um, you know, and are, have argued consistently that severe, persistent, targeted, um, uh, uh, severe, persistent, and pervasive targeted uh, discriminatory harassment is something that, that can and should be punished. And, and w- whereas a lot of times we've, we've seen that invoked in situations that come nowhere close to the line, we're seeing a lot more situations where it comes a hell of a lot closer to the line lately. I mean, the, the ugliness of some of the uh, of some of the interaction we're seeing on campus, you know, including things like the truth threats at Cornell, and you know, um, pe- you know, students actually being you know grabbed or you know trapped in libraries. Um, that's you know, none of that is protected, nor should it be. We have a question here for, uh, from a listener. Is there a university that you can use as an example of the right way to handle the current tumultuous Israeli-Palestinian discord? Course, who is excellent ex- or excelling at promoting free speech? I was actually on Jake Tapper. On Friday, debating uh, this issue with Fred Lawrence over, who was a former president of Brandeis, and I was talking with Jake either before or after the appearance, and he's a trustee at Dartmouth. He was talking about some of the things that the new president at Dartmouth is doing. Yeah. He, he was thinking that, he was saying that they haven't seen, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the conflagrations that some of these other campuses have seen. He believes in part because of the efforts by the president and everyone at the top of that administration to set up opportunities for civil discourse across lines of difference. Um, whether that'll work at every college or university, it's hard to say, but um, I, Greg, I know you are pretty optimistic about what's going on over at Dartmouth. 
I, I have great hope there. Um, and, and I say that very cautiously because I've had hope in other universities before and have been bitterly disappointed. Um, uh, you know, but at the same time, um, I think University of Virginia is trying uh, hard to, to be good on free speech. And they actually uh, ended up in the top 10 of our, our campus free speech uh, ranking, one of the only uh, well-known elite schools to do that. University of Chicago does well. But some of the stuff that Dartmouth is trying right now, um, I really like it. Like, and, and the idea of opening up from day one, something like we've been advocating uh, for, from the beginning, not saying here is your bias-related incident uh, hotline to call and you know report your fellow students and professors for saying offensive things, to set them up initially to be kind of like, listen, understanding the world is difficult. Um, tr- truth is very hard to attain. It's a never-ending process. Read Jonathan Rauch. You know, it, it, it's something that it's never actually finished, and it's always up for continuing debate and, and refinement, and you'll never be done. Um, and one of the things that uh, that one of the many things I think Dartmouth is doing right is that um, they started having serious dialogues about Israel Palestine months ago. Um, you don't wait for the crisis to hit. You, you you try to see what what might come up and then try to get people talking across lines of difference. Um, trying for that matter, even trying to take the other person's point of view, like a good scholar should be able to do. And that actually depolarizes. That's the way to use free speech to depolarize rather than polarize. Because it's really hard once you've taken someone else's perspective or know them better or at least you know, argued with them face-to-face to think that, they, that the, your, your opponent must be stupid or evil. Something else that I thought was pretty clever um, that uh, Dartmouth is doing is they're doing a lot more co-teaching with professors who don't see eye-to-eye on various topics. Um, this is something that I know Cornell West and Robbie George did very effectively at, um, at Princeton. And it was one of those uh, ideas that I hadn't, I realized that I hadn't given as much thought to as being very smart because we do have a serious problem, a a serious sort of um, gloom on the horizon for free speech on campus is that according to our own um, uh, surveys and a lot of, you know, existing data, the rising sort of crop of younger professors tend to be even more politically homogenous and not as good on free speech and academic freedom as, you know, boomers and, and we awesome Gen Xers. Sorry, we're the best generation. Um, <laughs> and, 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 the, um, and that's, that's distressing. But one way to address, to make that matter a little bit less, is to have more co-teaching with professors who disagree. And I think that that's modeling, that, that, that's modeling intellectual humility. I think that's modeling um, the, the, the ability that we want all students to have to be able to, um, you know, be, be conversant in multiple sides of any given topic like a good scholar should be. And I, I talk about this in my first book, Unlearning Liberty, um, which came out in 2012. And my argument in, in, in there was, are we, are we training activists or are we training scholars? Um, and what's funny is in the 90s and in the early part of my career, campuses were constantly saying, we're not training activists. We're not doing that. That's not something we do at all. And now they don't even bother to, you know, say that they're not doing that. They actually kind of lean into the fact that that's kind of the mentality that they're training. But that's not a very scholarly uh, approach to it. Like that, th- th- that essentially the idea of coming to, to coming to issues with taking seriously the possibility you might be wrong and knowing that you have stuff to learn. That's a much more scholarly attitude. Um, and it's and it's something about understand the world before you try to change it. There was, um, you know, the conversation right now is all about whether calls for genocide are protected speech. Uh, but early in this conflict after October 7th, one of the big topics of conversation was institutional neutrality. That is, yeah. should colleges and universities 
be neutral on social and political issues and whether the the attacks by Hamas on October 7th uh, were something that colleges and universities should weigh in on, much in the same way that they weighed in on the George Floyd protests, the uh, Dobbs abortion decision, the elections, uh, the list goes on and on and on and on. And folks often refer back to, folks who are in support of institutional neutrality, refer back to the Calvin Report, which was issued by the University of Chicago in 1967 in response to just a number of demands by the community internally and externally to uh, weigh in and take official institutional positions on social and political issues. And ultimately what the report, and it's about a page and a half long, I'd urge folks to check it out. You just Google the Calvin report, Calvin spelled with a K. Ultimately what the university determined was that their institution is uh, created for the purpose of the dissemination, preservation, and creation of knowledge, and that the university itself and its administration is the host of critics, but they themselves are not the critics. The critics are the students and faculty who are engaged in the knowledge generation process, who have the debates and the discussions about the social and political issues. And what we found is that as colleges and universities have weighed in more on these issues, they're getting themselves into quagmires, right? Like you weigh in on one issue, you weigh in on George Floyd, you weigh in on the Dobbs decision, you can expect that if you don't weigh in on, say, the attacks on October 7th, that people are going to impugn political motivations for not doing so. And, and also, we've seen over the years that as institutions have been perceived, and in some cases are, more politicized, trust in those institutions decline. And colleges and universities cannot survive if they lose the public trust. And unfortunately, as recent polling has shown public trust in colleges and universities is declining precipitously. So Greg, I'm wondering if you have anything you want to add about the Calvin Report institutional neutrality and whether colleges and universities should, in fact, adopt um, statements like the one that the University of Chicago did in 1967. Yeah, I came in, um, when I started in 2001, I, I wasn't a big fan of the Calvin Report. I didn't really see the harm in university presidents um, you know, opining on issues of the day, um, if uh, particularly if that was instead of the temptation to punish students or professors for what they had to say. Um, so there would be some cases, like at University of Pennsylvania, where a president, university president, would. I remember there was a party that Republicans have where the entire goal was to be as offensive as possible, <laughs> and so that meant you know uh, people uh, showed up you know dressed like Nazis. Um, and you know, other sort of you know offensive costumes, and uh, he and what the president and this was actually uh, Graham Spanier at the time you know uh, called the students out saying that this was offensive and, and juvenile, um, but but protected. And I was like, you know what? If that's what he's going to do instead of um, punish them, I can live with that. And that was but Penn State, I, right, Greg? That, oh, sorry, Penn State. Yeah. Um, that's that's when I came to. But over the years, I came to realize that every time a university president, you know, or for that matter, a department opines on a particular political issue, they are doing something that is antithetical to what a university is supposed to be. They are establishing a political orthodoxy. They're basically saying this on this campus, we believe it's like those signs that people have inside of their houses on the, on, on this campus. We believe the following things. 
And that is not uh, what the role of a university, or again, for that matter, a department should be. Um, that essentially they should be uh, hosts to the critics, not the critics themselves, as the Calvin Report says. So I've become very pro-Calvin Report. But I think it's a good beginning. It's not nearly enough. Uh, and also, when it comes to the timing of the discovery of the Calvin Report for some of these schools, um, you know, October 7th happened, you know, utterly horrifying uh, attack. Um, and uh, universities who have opined on every other, you know, major incident um, from the war in Ukraine to certainly George Floyd to things of, of much, uh, much lesser global importance uh, that's, you know, uh, appealed to, uh, to, to them uh, from a political stance. They were much more cautious, measured and and I think in many, in many situations, university presidents who were very supportive of Israel and were horrified by the attacks, they were scared to actually say what their uh, opinion was on that. And I think they were scared of, I'm going to forgive the expression, cancel culture. I think they were afraid of their own students. I think they were afraid of their own activists. They were afraid of their own administrators. And they are afraid of their own faculty about the blowback because the pro-Palestinian uh, stance on some colleges is not necessarily a majority stance, but very strong. And in the polling, it's very popular among young people. It's very popular among professors. Um, so the decision to, uh, to, make, to, to then decide that they have institutional neutrality was rightfully criticized by, you know, uh, our advisory council member, Larry Summers, and our board member, Sam Abrams. So I, I, I get that. Um, there was, uh, but I think that ultimately, if universities adopt uh, neutrality and stick with it, they'll be better off long term. But here's here's where my skepticism really comes in. And I have a Substack. Um, oh, I can say that on this version of X. I have a Substack called uh, the Eternally Radical Idea, where I you know I talk about a lot of these cases, and they've been coming at a breakneck pace, of course, lately. Um, and my, my cynicism comes from again my experience in nine eleven. Campuses are really good at circling the wagons, claiming that it's a new McCarthyism, that term comes up a lot, um, when the threat to academic freedom is perceived or actually coming from off-campus, uh, off um, when it's coming from, and which includes people like donors, which include people like alumni. Um, and, uh, but then, uh, and, and so and then they actually sort of clothe themselves in the language of academic freedom and free speech. But when the threat comes from on campus, from student activists, from professors, from administrators, and oftentimes it's student activists and administrators and sometimes professors kind of working together, they're completely cowardly. So I need years of schools being good on this kind of stuff to even begin to believe them that they're sincerely changing uh, uh, changing their ways, particularly at schools that have been as consistently bad as Harvard and Penn. I think we're still here. Your mention of Substack, Greg, didn't <laughs> deplatform us. I thought we'd immediately get shut down. <laughs> oh, no, we, we, we mentioned the forbidden site. Um, you mentioned donors, Greg. I think a lot of folks uh, have questions about kind of donors' involvement in everything that's going on at these college and universities. For years, FIRE have said that alumni and donors and boards of trustees can uh, provide helpful pressure in getting colleges and universities to recommit to principles of free expression. Uh, there have been some calls from donors in this current context, which aren't always free speech friendly. How are you looking at all of that? And what, what can, what guidance can we give to donors now so that they keep these colleges and universities on the right track? Yeah. So it, it, uh, the, when it comes to donors, uh, you know, we have an issue with donors if they're saying fire this professor or, um, expel these students for their speech. That that is not something that that's where we you know draw the line. But if donors are saying, you know what, this place sucks. I'm not giving my money to it anymore. I, you know, 
partially with my own hat on. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, it's like damn right. Like the, the idea that a, a mega corporation, Harvard, that has over fifty billion dollars in their rainy day fund, which is you mean a uh, mega hedge fund, <laughs> me, 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 mega hedge fund needs your you know hundred million dollars, um, you know is crazy. And give that you know give that money to uh, fire. Give that money to uh, University of Austin. Give that money to um, you know uh, what um, Sal Khan is doing with uh, with School USA to actually figure out ways to. Um, actually invest in other things in the meantime. Don't, d- don't let them say, oh, we will fix this. Keep, keep your money until they have fixed it and shown they have fixed it for a while. Or build um, new institutions. Like or build new they're... institutions. We, we, we desperately need that. So, so I think that the um, uh, universities have become too reliant on the idea that, that, that they're kind of almost owed this ridiculous amount of extra money. I, me- I remember when I was at Stanford, you know, when, when we would get... Um, you know, alumni pledges. And, you know, one of my friends looking at me kind of like, Walmart doesn't ask me for extra money. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Walmart has less money than Stanford. Um, So, uh, you know, like, I I think that donors can play a very positive role. I think that they should be pushing. um, And and we are here and happy to help. And I think that some of the steps that need to be uh, taken are painful. I think that there's probably... It's going to be very difficult to fix the free speech problem on campus without fixing the hyper-bureaucratization problem. I say this over and over again. They're very closely related. Um, and, but I think now there's enough skepticism about what's going on in higher ed um, that, uh, that I think real reform is possible. And meanwhile, kind of like it, it's, it's interesting for me because writing Canceling the American Mind – Talking about all these um, all these cases, talking about how dysfunctional the way campuses have taught us to argue, to win arguments without winning arguments, about all these rhetorical fortresses, as we call them in the book, that they've set up that will never get you anywhere near truth. It left me pretty, frankly, depressed and anxious you know, about the book coming out because it made me feel pretty bleak about the potential uh, future for higher ed. Um, and even though things are looking pretty bleak right now, at least I'm getting the sense that people are waking up to, oh, wow, this is, this is really, this is as crazy as maybe Haidt and Lukianoff and Fire have been saying for a long time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as, as I said on Bill Maher, welcome to the party. Yeah, well, we, there are, you got talking about some potential solutions there, Greg. You got talking about the de-bureaucratization. We talked a little bit about building new institutions, which I know is one of Barry Weiss's big uh, bugaboos at the moment. It reminds me of the Sam Rayburn quote, Sam Rayburn being the uh, old Speaker of the House in Congress who said, any jackass can kick down a barn, but it takes a good carpenter to build one. I think we need more good carpenters at the moment. But I think, and I'm hopeful that this, Greg, uh, this moment will help universities rediscover their missions. And yeah. Fareed Zakaria talked a little bit about this on his program over the weekend, and he had a clip that went viral. It's about five minutes that kind of encompasses and what he, his opinion is the main problem with colleges and universities. And he, see, he says that universities have supplanted the truth-seeking function of a university uh, with social justice causes and DEI efforts. And I know your co-author on the coddling of the American mind Jonathan Haidt talks a lot about the telos of a university. What is the core purpose of a telos uh, of the university? And he talks about how universities can only really have one core purpose, just kind of like a planet only has one axis that it can spin on. And if you try and spin on multiple accesses, multiple teloses, things get all jiggered up, right? Piggly, piggly. Piggly, piggly. Yeah, I was trying to figure (laughs) out a good good silly word to describe that. 
But uh, we, we've seen it in some of the, the conversations surrounding the most recent issue that this every challenge is also an opportunity, right? Um, you said you're going to need years to see whether that one plays out. But uh, what, what are you thinking about the missions of colleges and universities at the moment? I think that there has been um, that a lot of university presidents um, seem almost uncomfortable with saying that the, you know, the role of this university is truth seeking. Um, and they talk about multiple other things, um, about many laudable things like diversity and inclusion. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, um, and this was a very strange thing to have to explain to, 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 uh, it's not sound very nice way to put it, but to educated people that I, I, you know, I dealt with some activists, you know, friends of mine who didn't understand what, um, what height was saying. It's like, no, we, we want to serve both truth and social justice. Um, and the problem is, is that you, but you already think you know what social justice is. You, you already think you know what tree to push against, what the agenda should be. That's certainty. That's unscholarly certainty. You're starting with assumptions about what it must look like. Um, intellectual humility is saying maybe we're wrong about all this stuff. Alice Dreger in, in her great Galileo's Middle Finger, you know, makes the point that uh, truth is a necessary precondition to social justice. Um, but it's not the function of the university to, to, to figure out social justice is to figure out what the world actually looks like, which is surely a difficult enough task. And by the way, if you have preconceived notions of what it must look like, you're going to get an increasingly distorted picture, which is, I fear, one of the things that's happening right now. It's one of the reasons why people don't take uh, many academic um, experts as seriously as, as they once did, is because um, it, they sense that, in some cases, they'll place ideology above truth-seeking. And unfortunately, I've seen this indications of this all throughout my career, I've seen a lot of scholars actually making the argument um, that, uh, th that essentially, oh, yeah, there's this amazing, amazingly bad book uh, written by two AUP, American Uni uh, Association of University Professors, called It's Not About Free Speech. And during uh, one of the worst threats to free speech and academic freedom I'm familiar with in, like, since the law has been established, the worst threat, we, we talk about, you know, over 200, uh, you know, 200 professors being fired, you know, which is twice as many as, fi as pro uh, professors that we know of were fired, you know, at, 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 um, that we knew at the time of, of McCarthyism. Um, we're, we're dealing with like a, a very, you know, a, a very serious situation. And there are people actually arguing that we have to actually now limit academic freedom to anything that might um, present white supremacy. And in the course of making that argument, they actually they actually argued that uh, that they meant the CRT version of white supremacy, which is basically anything that they disagree with. So like, I, I think that uh, universities have strayed very far from the idea that truth seeking is their function, and we need some bold university presidents saying that is first and foremost what we're here for. We are here for uh, promoting inquiry and taking seriously the, the the search for truth by slashing away at falsity. Yeah, I want to remind folks, we've got about 15 minutes left here. If you have questions, please put them in the chat, and our uh, social media guy will feed them on over to us to answer. Uh, Greg, you talk a lot about epistemic humility, and it, it, it reminds me of an experience I had when I was in college at Indiana University where uh, this fundamentalist evangelical pastor, Douglas Wilson, came to campus. Uh, folks who are familiar with him might know him from his nationwide tour with uh, the late, in my opinion, great Christopher Hitchens. Uh, who had died in 2011, and Douglas Wilson came to Indiana University's campus uh, shortly after his passing. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Chris, Christopher Hitchens, and uh, this was my opportunity as a student at Indiana University to play Christopher Hitchens and to debate Douglas Wilson. But no sooner had he stood up uh, to start talking that uh, my fellow students at Indiana University started shouting him down, and I'll never forget a line he had. 
as he was being shouted down. He said, I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. And I think that phrase, Greg, perfectly encapsulates this sort of epistemic humility that any good scholar should approach colleges and universities with. It's this idea that we'll have strong convictions loosely held. And you talk, Greg, about how the admissions process for students should, oh, yeah. should, um, should help kind of encourage these values uh, and, st- and, and screen students for those who are interested in talking across lines of difference and playing devil's advocate uh, and thought experimentation rather than some of the current uh, social justice causes that are, are used to screen out students in admission. I mean, I, it struck me that in this Douglas Wilson experience, these people were so certain in their beliefs that they didn't let Douglas speak and they wouldn't let anyone else in the audience who wanted to hear him listen. Uh, they were so certain in their beliefs that they, they thought nobody else should have the right to engage with what he had to say. And I don't think that's a fundamentally scholarly way uh, to approach colleges, college, the college and university experience. Um, yeah, well, th- that's something that we oppose uh, um, at every level are the political litmus tests. And, and although we focused on things like DEI statements as being obviously political litmus tests when it comes to hiring your professors, a lot of universities in their application process, one, they actually now require DEI statements, which you know can't help but be political litmus tests. Uh, we actually explain this in great detail in Canceling the American Mind. But also there's going to be an excerpt running in Reason Magazine pretty soon um, called The Conformity Gauntlet, kind of explaining you know, the research that, that confirms the obvious truth that DEI statements are political litmus tests. But they're not the only political litmus test. Um, and that university you know, seem to be asking their students to show, like, are you, are you the right kind of activist instead of are you the right kind of uh, scholar? I'd certainly remember when I was applying to Stanford, you know. Because um, I have great activist cred, you know, I've been working with inner city high school kids on environmental mentoring programming. I've been, you know, set up a, a, a an aid to um, an aid to refugee program when I was young. But at the same time, and you know, that's all swell. Um, but in many ways, I think it's more important that I worked at Burlington Coat Factory and was a cook on Block Island, and uh, you know, had you know, twenty different jobs since I was eleven. Because um, that taught me, you know, to talk across lines of difference, to actually know people from different countries and strata and and regions. Um, and what I'm getting at is right now that essentially there is a political litmus test for even students to get in. Um, and that, uh, but, but since it focuses on activism, it's going to give you disproportionately, you know, people who come in pretty certain about they understand how the world works and how it needs to be fixed before they've actually even started their education. Meanwhile, if instead what you prioritized was someone showing that they're filled with curiosity um, and that they don't know, know everything and that they're, they want to learn and they want to listen you know, that would be uh, really powerful. Now, of course, the question is, like, how are they going to achieve that? How can we trust these administrators, you know, to, um, uh, to achieve that? And part of the argument is rather than even doing this kind of stuff at all, that, you know, as um, uh, uh, Evan Mandry points out in his book, his excellent book, Poison Ivy, maybe it actually should be uh, something where, uh, you know, all valedictorians from public schools in a particular area, you know, uh, get the opportunity to, to, to be admitted to various schools. That could actually potentially be a better system. I feel like you need some objective uh, criteria. And if it was based less on figuring out whether or not I like the ideology of someone and more on objective standards, I think some of this problem might actually start to address itself. But if you're going to be selecting for characteristics, don't uh, select for epistemic uh, certainty and arrogance. Uh, Select for people who are actually like, 
I want to know the world. Uh, I want to spend the rest of my life swimming in the ocean of, of, of knowledge and knowing that I'll never get anywhere close to the shore. Now, viewpoint diversity for faculty, Greg, uh, I read a statistic not too long ago that said that I think that for every eight and a half, or no, for every one conservative professor, there were two liberal professors. This was in the 1980s, but now it stands at about eight and a half to one, eight and a half uh, liberal professors to one conservative professor. And it's even higher than that, much higher than that in some departments and some liberal arts colleges. Uh, you know, what does the lack of viewpoint diversity on college campuses, what's the impact on freedom of expression and the search for truth? And, and if you would kind of speak to the impacts on polarization as well, and, and Cass Sunstein's work, work on uh, the law of group polarization. Yeah, um, I, I had a, uh, you know, I, I got my best distillation of, of sort of explaining the relationship between group polarization um, and freedom of speech today that I, I retweeted. Um, and I was talking about the hate speech laws that I'm told have not quite been passed in Ireland, um, but giving the example of what they actually did in France, because France passed hate speech laws, like um, laws against anti-Semitic speech a long time ago. And by every measure, anti-Semitism has gotten worse in France since they passed the, uh, them. And I don't think that's in, not only just in spite of the hate speech codes, I think it's partially because of it. Because, you know, one thing I say is if you're fighting people who believe there's a conspiracy to shut them up, do absolutely nothing that, <laughs> that looks like a conspiracy <laughs> to shut them up. That plays into their paranoia. Um, but also, basically what France was saying, since they don't seem to get that censorship doesn't change anyone's mind, is um, only talk to people who agree with you. So your plan is what? Um, have all the anti-Semites only talk to other anti-Semites, and then you're shocked that anti-Semitism gets worse? Obviously, you should have seen that coming. So group polarization is a very normal natural, pernicious, common sense, uh, you know, psychological phenomena. When it comes to viewpoint diversity on campus, that's one of those issues where it's not, you know, that, that's a, it's a, something that I very much agree with Jonathan Haidt about, that uh, it's hard to be too optimistic about the future of higher ed if it just continues to get less and less politically diverse and more and more, uh, you know, politically um, pushed in one direction. Because in order to, you know, fight that sort of intellectual certainty, that group think, uh, you need some people going, actually, I think what you're saying is BS. I actually, I, I, I reject your fundamental premises um, I, 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 and, let's, mm -hmm. and let's hash it out. And so it, it is a question for us, like, can universities actually, uh, you know, fix themselves without committing to having greater viewpoint diversity? And it's very hard to see a way that they can uh, do that. It's not, you know, it's not an official fire position, but we do, we do pain over this quite a bit. That, uh, so that's one of the reasons why I kind of like the idea of having co-taught classes with people disagree, because that would create a situation in which part of the requirement is to actually find professors who disagree with other professors um, uh, to, to work in various schools. Well, as, as I said earlier in this conversation, Greg, every crisis is an also, also an opportunity. And so what do, you, what do you see as the most likely path forward? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Uh, just, what is your what is your psychological state right now? My psychological state is I think 2024 is going to be an incredibly polarizing year, no, no, um, no matter what, uh, particularly with an election coming up. Um, and I think that we're going to see an increase in cancel culture next year. Uh, I, I very much hope to be wrong. I think that there is a, uh, a level of sort of skepticism about what's going on in higher ed to help, help potentially lead to positive changes there. Um, and I really do think that it could, because even if it was just on cost alone and bureaucratization, 
the, the fact that universities have been putting people into tremendous debt while at the same time primarily focusing on growing their bureaucracies is something that every American should be pretty annoyed about. So I think that reform, this was unsustainable. It could not keep going this way and, and it has to, it has to, we have to seriously address it at some point. So I have greater hope for meaningful reform now. Could that meaningful reform though go completely the wrong direction? I sure as hell hope not, but I really, but I, you know, once again, offer, you know, fires help and advice to make sure that it doesn't go in that direction. You ready for a nice, relaxing uh, holiday season here, Greg? Oh, oh yeah. No, no, I don't, I, I'm just getting ready to sip, sip this cup of coffee. No, no, nothing's going to happen. Uh, some mold wine might be uh, better at getting through this uh, current moment, but uh, <laughs> I, I think we're going to wrap it up here, folks. I wanted to mention if you like what fire is doing and you want to fight for the cause of free speech, we're building a free speech army. We launched a membership program earlier this year uh, where you can become a FIRE member, $25 uh, donation. You'll get a FIRE membership card, invitations to uh, exclusive events. And uh, you know you can do that by going to thefire.org. Uh, there should be a button at the bottom that says become a member now. Or if you just go up to the donate button at the top, uh, it should siphon you in the right direction. But we're, again, trying to build uh, a free speech army uh, with a membership program. We already have over 10,000 uh, FIRE members. And we'd look, love to have more principled free speech advocates in our corner advocating for these timeless principles of free speech, academic freedom, freedom of the press, uh, and the, frankly, the just basic right to be who you are and to speak your mind. Um, I should also note that this conversation we will run as a podcast on my podcast called So to Speak, the Free Speech Podcast. Uh, if you enjoy conversations like this, we host conversations like this on a multitude of topics uh, every other week. You can subscribe wherever you get your, your podcasts. And also, do not forget, buy Greg's new book, Canceling <laughs> of the American Mind. He's out there doing a ton of media about it. It couldn't be more relevant to this current moment. Greg, do you have any last thoughts before we sign off? Uh, that it makes a great stocking stuffer for people who assured you cancel culture is a hoax. <laughs> all right, <laughs> thanks, folks. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate all of your listening and support, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Great chatting with you.